minutes ago. I'm looking real good in my passport photo. Amateur Traveler, episode 193. Today, the amateur traveler goes back to Beijing, China, but this time as an independent traveler. Welcome to the Amateur Traveler. I'm your host, Chris Christensen. Before we get into this week's episode, I do have three news stories for you. The first one is a major oops that's going to cost American Airlines a little bit of money. One of their airline maintenance workers apparently retracted the landing gear of a plane while it was still on the tarmac. Not a good idea. And the second one was a little more sad, but also an accident. A cruise ship in Alaska, where someone goes, among other things, to spot whales, actually impaled a fin whale on the bow of the ship. That's a little too up close and personal. But then apparently in a gesture to show that there were no hard feelings, a diver recently who was taking part in a free diving contest in northeast China was in a pool that happened to have whales. She began to drown because she had cramps in her legs and was brought to the surface by a beluga whale. Links to those stories as well as other news stories can be found at the show notes at AmateurTraveler.com. I'd like to welcome to the show Lee, who's come to us originally from Atlanta and currently from Qingdao, China, to talk to us about Northern China. Lee, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thank you very much. And it's a little strange. We're going to be talking somewhat starting with Beijing, and we just dealt with Beijing five episodes ago, but asked Lee to come on and talk because during the Beijing episode, we were talking about Beijing from a guided tour emphasis, and this is in episode 187 with Joy DuPont. And this is going to be from a very different point of view because, Lee, you're traveling, actually living in China right now, but traveling independently when you travel. What brought you to China? I started studying Chinese in my junior year at the University of Georgia. And right when I was about to graduate, I got a scholarship to go to China for a year to study. It's the Bourne Scholarship. It's run by the National Security Education Program. That's for Jason Bourne, for as in the Bourne identity? No, close. <laughs> Actually, it's a bit more boring of a boring. It's uh, David L. Bourne. He's a senator from Oklahoma. Ah, uh, Okay. <laughs> So if I'm traveling to China as an independent traveler, and I'm starting in Beijing as a lot of the flights are going in there, what do I need to know that's different from what Joy told us? It can be a little intimidating to get around, especially for the independent traveler. That's why I think a lot of people go with the tours, but I personally feel like you miss out on a lot of stuff. I've been on some tours led by Chinese tour guides and things like that, and I feel like independent travel, although harder, is a bit more rewarding, especially in China. And when we say harder, clearly the language is the biggest barrier that we're running into. Language, culture, but definitely language is a big deal for Westerners, uh, I suppose for anyone coming there, because the level of English spoken there is surprisingly a lot lower than I think many people expect. My parents came over here when I was living in Beijing, and they were quite surprised by how much trouble. I mean, I guess you think you get into a taxi cab and you can say the Hilton, and they'll know where that is, but they have a Chinese name for it. I've had that happen to me in Shanghai. It was the Marriott in that case, and until I remembered that it was Mingtian, until I remembered it was Tomorrow Square, because I had forgotten the little card that I had remembered to get from the desk clerk to be able to find my way back to the hotel. Yeah. 
I was like your parents. It's just stunned when I said very confidently the name of the hotel, and that was just no look of comprehension on the <laughs> taxi driver's face. We started yeah. pantomiming the shape of the hotel and. <laughs> Bring that card. That that card's pretty important for the independent traveler, or at least have them write down the name of the hotel on a little sheet of paper and make sure to keep that. If it's a smaller hotel, then they should still have something like that. But yeah, definitely, that's an important point. <laughs> now, you say the culture is also a barrier, not just the language. What kind of cultural barriers, even as somebody who knows some Chinese, did you run into? Let me throw one, not personally so much, but maybe that a lot of Americans would have trouble with it. My family had trouble with chopsticks. <laughs> sure. That's something you have to get over. I recommended this to my parents and they didn't follow my advice. I think they regretted it. Bring a fork. <laughs> Bring a metal fork if you don't know how to use chopsticks. You really do think that maybe like most places will have at least one fork, but mm, not really. Even a lot of more touristy places, it's a cultural thing. They really don't conceive of it as necessary or anything like that. Some hmm. places will, but... Actually, in the West, it wasn't originally conceived as necessary either. If you had it's... your knife and your spoon, a fork was, in fact, preached against as an unnecessary luxury in the early 1800s. I did not know that. Where was that? <laughs> and just all through Europe? Through the U.S., for instance. Wow. Huh. There's your trivia for the day. Yeah. So Beijing, as an independent traveler, I'm going to come into the airport. How am I getting to get into town if I'm not getting picked up by somebody with a sign with my name on it? There are three different ways. You can just take a cab in, which should cost you about 100 renminbi, 100 kwai. That's probably $14, $13, depending on what the exchange rate is. Okay. You can take a bus, which I think is about 15 renminbi. There is now a subway stop there, or a little train that connects to the subway. I have not taken that yet. It was built for the Olympics, so it's rather new. But I would think that would be the most convenient. And subways are the most convenient way to get around in Beijing. I went there just a few weeks ago just to check some stuff out and met up with a friend of mine who was traveling through there. The subway system is infinitely better than it was when I was living there. There used to be three lines. I think there are now seven or eight. Okay. They go where you need to go. For example, I believe they go to the Summer Palace, which Joy mentioned and that's one of the main attractions in Beijing. So you can even get to a lot of the tourist sites within the city using the subway. It's a little complicated. You have to buy a ticket, which is two renminbi. But I would just recommend going up to the counter with the person. There are machines there. It's kind of like Washington, D.C. You can buy a ticket to a certain place through a machine. Okay. The price used to change depending on where you went. But now, as far as I was able to tell, I went to some of the places where it used to be a different price, and they're all the same prices now. So it used to be as you traveled further, you had to pay more to get out of the subway system? It was actually more confusing than that. You could travel on two of the three lines for the same price. Got it. And then if you wanted to switch over to the light rail system. And it was so confusing because you actually had to leave the station and go up. I remember thinking this is not going to work out for the Olympics because it was about a seven or eight minute walk and you had to leave the station and there were signs posted in English, but it's still just really intimidating for maybe a first time to China. Now it's actually entirely within the station. 
but surprisingly that makes it a longer journey. It's like 10 or 12 minutes now <laughs> because hmm. they have to wind around some stuff, but still it's much easier from a tourist perspective. Okay. So we're getting around the subway and we talked about last time the Forbidden City and some of the sites. How would you change or augment an itinerary if I were going there independently from what we talked about in the episode with Joy? If you're over at the Summer Palace, which she talked about, there's the old Summer Palace, which is fairly close. You'll probably have to take a cab there, about 10 quai, I'd imagine. Another point, I know you always ask about warnings. This is one of the warnings. Be careful of cabs. They're a great way to get around the city in shorter distances. But I knew someone who left the Summer Palace and they just got a cab that was waiting there. And the cab was rigged so that they charged them three times the amount they were supposed to charge them. They mess with the meter. This will only happen if you're at a very touristy spot. So just be careful around those sorts of areas. But you can take a cab from the Summer Palace to the Old Summer Palace. I believe I'm correct in saying the Old Summer Palace was destroyed in 1898 by the eight countries, the eight Western nations that invaded. Oh, during the Boxer Rebellion. Boxer Rebellion. They call it the Eight Nation United Invasion. Well, sure. <laughs> but the palace, it's more like a park, except in this one area, which is still destroyed, but there's still a lot of stone remains. And this area was built in, I believe, the 1600s by Jesuit priests, surprisingly enough, for the new... Qing Dynasty. They invited some Jesuit architects to come and build this. Hmm. It's really surprising you're walking around and you can kind of see this area that was quite large, but you really just have foundations. And then you go into this one area. It's like being back in ancient Rome or ancient Greece. Hmm. Interesting. They've got this giant, what used to, I believe, be a boat. There's a little trough for the lake. It's an incongruent experience. You expect to be in China and then you're in Athens. Hmm. And as a student, and I'm going to guess you're traveling around on a student budget, what else would you see in Beijing? There's the drum tower and the bell tower. Those are just two older towers a little bit north of Tiananmen. It's kind of like a museum, but you can climb to the top. And when the smog is not destroying your view, you can see a good bit. You can, I believe, see the Tiananmen, if I remember correctly. I would go to the ancient observatory, too. It's in the Lonely Planet, but it's not mentioned as much in the travel books. It's, uh, I believe, Ming Dynasty. Should I explain the history a little? Sure. Beijing was founded. There had been a capital there, kind of local capital, but the Mongols really made it into the city that it is today. The Mongols were maybe 12th century. This is Genghis Kublai Khan. Khan. Genghis Khan. He was the first leader, obviously, but Kublai Khan moved the capital to Beijing. Okay. So after that, you've got the Ming Dynasty. They had their capital in Beijing as well, and that was where a lot of this stuff first got built, although it's all been torn down and rebuilt over the years. They were from maybe 1300s to 1644, I believe. Then you've got the Qing Dynasty. That's 1644 to 1911, 1912. So that goes up to the Republic of China. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Interesting. So the ancient observatory, I believe, was built during the Ming Dynasty. It's kind of interesting. There's kind of an old section of the wall fairly close to it. You can see the names of the people suppressing the Boxer Rebellion. They carved <laughs> their names into some hmm. of the wall, and they've got that preserved. They're still pretty bitter over that. <laughs> and when we say the people suppressing the Boxer Rebellion, a lot of our audience is from America, for instance, and I'm not sure that they realize that the U.S. is one of eight nations total that invaded China 
in mm-hmm. the early 1800s, basically to put down this rebellion by the Chinese people against basically the China's trade policy was being dictated by foreigners, us. <laughs> and right. the boxers rebelled against that, and this led to an invasion, which also led to places like Hong Kong being taken from China and Macau and those sort of places. Yeah, the boxers, they're from Shandong, where I am right now. They were really angry, not only about the trade policy, but also about the railroads that foreigners were forcing China to put through their territory. They felt it was destroying the feng shui and things like that. Hmm, And uh, the boxers, they believed that they could not be harmed by Western bullets. The reason they're called boxers is because they had kind of this very spiritual martial art. They took over Beijing and held most of the Westerners in Beijing hostage. And that was when the Westerners came from Tianjin up into Beijing and destroyed the old Summer Palace and things like that. But yeah, America, Italy, England, England and France were the main ones, but there were a lot of others participating too. And if you're interested in more in that story, there's a movie, a Charlton Heston movie from long enough ago that it's called The 55 Days at Peking. Did you want to mention, because I'll bet you know, why we went from Peking to Beijing? There are several different ways to Romanize Chinese, to put it into mm-hmm. Roman characters. Peking, I believe, comes from the Wei Jiao system, which is now not really used outside of scholarly discourse. It's mostly like people from any time before the 1950s. The communists created their own system, which is now dominant. It's what I learned when is I was that the starting. Opinion, yeah. Okay. For example, Qingdao, when you see it written in the West, like if you go to a restaurant and you see an advertisement for Qingdao, it will always say T S I N G T A O or D A O. I can't. I think D A O. I think. DAO, okay. Today it's spelled Q I N G D A O. And for like Taoism, Taoism. It's actually Taoism, but because originally people learned about it through that previous system, they still have a lot of things that are spelled T-A-O, and people are just kind of used to that for some things. Peking. The French still call it Peking. I'm wrong. It's T-S-I-N-G-T-A-O. For like Tsinghua University, it used to be spelled T-S-I-N-G-H- U-A. It should be spelled with a Q, but because they want to emphasize that they're just that old. They call themselves the MIT of China, and so to emphasize their age, they spell it the old way. (laughs) Interesting. So what else should we see in Beijing as more of a backpacker independent traveler? Two last things that are less covered in the travel books that I think is really good for backpackers, independent travelers. There's Beijing Underground, which is Hmm. fairly close to Tiananmen, which is the southern part of Tiananmen. It's probably a 10 or 15 minute walk. It's kind of like a bomb shelter, but it's a city. They built all these tunnels under the ground in Beijing and in a lot of other cities. I want to say after 1969, because a lot of people don't know this, the Russians and the Chinese came quite close. close to war, right? It was the second closest the world came to nuclear war besides the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. So after that, Mao wanted these tunnels built. It's not just tunnels. There's a hospital. There's a movie theater. Hmm. These are all labeled in there. And you can't really see that much. It's fairly primitive. But it's still really interesting. And it's funny because the walls are all completely decorated in pictures of Chinese planes and things like that. I have a picture of me and my little brother. We kind of took some of the clothes, some of the like gas mask and things like that off of a mannequin that is just down there randomly. It's kind of a surreal experience. So it's definitely something. It's quite cheap, too. It's like 10 or 20 renminbi 
a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, something like that. The last thing is the legation walk. They have it written out in the Lonely Planet. I didn't see it in any of the other guidebooks that I've looked at. It's east of Tiananmen Square. It's, it's a little hard to get to. You go east of Mao's mausoleum and then south. There's a Beijing police museum there. And all of these buildings were actually where the Japanese, where the English, the Americans, they had their legations because they couldn't have embassies. Mm-hmm. But these buildings are all really kind of an old, made out of stone. You can see like the Bank of Manhattan. Actually, I think it's the Bank of New York City because it eventually became Citibank. Hmm. Of course, these were all kicked out in 1949 and maybe before and occupied by a lot of party-related things now. So that's a really interesting walk. There's a lot of history, but it's not as promoted in the guidebooks. And I enjoyed just walking around there. If I want to get in touch more with the older part of Beijing, if I want to see more Ming Dynasty or Qing Dynasty, any places that you found that were undiscovered gems? I believe you can rent a bike in some of the Hutong hotels or in some of the cheaper hostels. I definitely recommend that. You can rent a bike. I know at Hohai, there's a lake and it's kind of a bar district where everything's fairly well preserved, but I don't like that area. It's kind of a Disneyland preservation. Okay. It's got this kind of overly preserved feeling, I guess is what I'm saying. I know Joy mentioned the Lama Temple, which is kind of more towards the north, northeast part of the second ring road. There's a subway stop there. Go to the Lama Temple, see that. Right across the street is a Confucian Temple. It's kind of interesting. It's got all these giant rock steles. So see that and then just take your bike around that area and go get lost. I feel like that's a fairly well-preserved place, but it's not well-preserved in the sense that people have tried to preserve it. People are still living there, and you can kind of feel the rhythm of old Beijing. Okay. Did you ever take the opportunity of hiring a guide more for a day trip for understanding a particular part of Beijing or a particular part of the culture? I never really did. I mean, I know it's for some people, but I've been on, like I said, a couple of guided tours before. I've never found them to really say that much <laughs> that I couldn't find in a, in in a, a guide book. book. Right. So that's kind of my perspective. Okay. If you feel like you need one, you go to the Forbidden Temple and someone's, hello, English guide, you'll get plenty of <laughs> offers. Okay. So if you feel like it's worth it, go for it. And you mentioned hostels, and I do want to talk a little bit about where we'd stay and where we'd eat when we're off the tourist track or more on the backpacker track. What would you recommend? Because I lived in Beijing, so I never had to... (laughs) Sure. I found a hotel for my parents when they were staying there, and it was nice. I can't recommend any particular place because the place that they stayed was fairly far out of the city. It's a nice area, but it's not really somewhere I would recommend. Okay. I've heard a lot of good things about people staying in the kutongs that have been turned into hotels. They take some of the areas that people were living in and maybe had to move out, and they turn those into hotels. I hear those are nice, and they're not too pricey. It's my understanding. And how would I find one? They're listed in your guidebook. That would be the way. This would not have been possible during the Olympics. You would need to reserve in advance. But when I'm traveling in China, I've never reserved a room in advance. Okay. I just kind of go to the area where it shows several hotels, and generally you'll find a lot more. I end up paying for an independent traveler I would say 100 to 200 RMB a night, which that's maybe 13 to 25 mm-hmm. 
I can find places that are probably a little bit harder for someone who hasn't been traveling in China as much, but you can find somewhere that's 100 or 200. Okay. So I think you're saying the recommendation is to call you then. (laughs) I'll see what I can do, but you know. When I was in Shanghai a couple of weeks ago, I found a place for 70 so $10. It's just like a room outside the train station, and it's just a line of hotels and restaurants, and I just kind of had to walk in and like say, how much are your rooms? Oh, I'm sorry, we don't take foreigners. I'd go to the next one. They're like, oh, 70 renminbi. We don't take foreigners. Interesting. Because of the regulations. A yeah, lot that's of, what I wondered. But these people are in it to make money too, so just ask and see if they take foreigners or not, and if they do, they do. If they don't, they don't. But almost all of the larger hotels will take foreigners. Hmm. Interesting. And then if we were to get out from Beijing, unless there's anything else you think we ought to do while we're there, what kind of day trips would you recommend? As far as day trips, Joy mentioned the Ming Tombs and the Great Wall. I'm pretty sure it was at Badaling. That's a really popular trip. I would definitely recommend going to the Ming Tombs. They're fairly old tombs. It's just pretty incredible pictures. I think the one that I went to was called Changling. It's one of the larger ones. And you were saying, I think, before we started recording that you can get there on the bus, too. You can get there on a public bus. If you go to Tiananmen, you would get like a tour bus that wouldn't be really a tour guide so much, but they would take you to those places and you would come back. Got it. They would probably take you to the Ming Tombs and to Badaling. Ming Tombs is definitely a worthwhile day trip. Great Wall is one of those required ones. I actually like Mu Tianyu, which is a bit to the east of Badaling, and it's not quite as crowded, but it's still... So that's a point on the Great Wall that you can go to that's not as crowded, is what you're saying? Yeah. Mu Tianyu is kind of like a strip of the Great Wall, and it's still fairly developed. You can take like a bucket ride up, kind of like a gondola, but maybe not quite that nice or anything. And coming down, it was paid for by the school that I was at at that time. So I took a little race car down this little tube thing. (laughs) You just kind of got a handbrake and you go down. (laughs) Mutianyu is a fairly well-developed place, but Badaling is the place where Nixon and Mao got their picture taken and things like that. So it's been developed for quite some time. (laughs) Otherwise, there's Sumatai, which is a fairly rugged section of the wall. You have to take a bus to, I believe it's Hairao. There are buses that go there on the weekend, but not during the week, that go directly there. Otherwise, you're going to have to take a bus to a certain smaller city outside of Beijing and then take a cab from there. Or if there's not a bus, you would, you would take that. And are there resources available for the independent traveler? How are you finding some of these things if you don't live there? There's a magazine called That's Beijing. Mm -hmm. They published an article about kind of the lesser-known areas of the wall. You can look that up online. That's probably a good place to start if you're looking to go more somewhere outside of the tourist area. Okay. But like Sumatai is in Lonely Planet, and it's in some other guides too. Top 10 Guide to Beijing has 10 different spots on the wall. Okay. So just one more place. I love the Great Wall. I really do. It's, it's so amazing. I've been on different parts of it seven or eight times. Hmm. I've never been disappointed. I definitely recommend going. One of the places I just went to was called Jiankou. It's going to be harder to get to. What you could do if you're up for it, this place is not only kind of hard to get to, so it's more for the more independent of the independent travelers, but it's also... <laughs> It's quite a hike up there, but it's supposed to be one of the most photogenic parts of the wall. 
I say supposed to be because when I got there, it was 50 feet visibility because of uh, fog. It was still amazing. But to get there, you would have to take the bus to Mutianyu and then arrange a cab that would take you there. It's probably 100 renminbi to get there. But you get there and you have to do a two and a half hour hike up to the wall. Hmm. It doesn't cost anything, whereas at most of the other places you're paying 30, 40 renminbi, maybe 50 at the most to get onto the wall. This place, it doesn't cost anything. There's no one to even charge you because you're hiking so far. You have to do a couple of rock scrambles. So it's <laughs> it's not the safest thing either. I wouldn't recommend my grandmother doing it. My parents might be able to do it. It's a really pretty area of the wall. There's a place that is probably six or eight hour train ride from Beijing. It's called Datong. There's some really cool Buddhist caves. They've hmm. carved a whole bunch of Buddhist images into the sides of the caves. And you walk into the first one and you're just totally awed. It's, it's kind of dim lights. And you just go into cave after cave. And none of them are quite as incredible as the first one. But those are called the Yangon Caves. They're in Datong. They also have nearby the Hanging Monasteries. You're going to probably have to take a tour bus, but you should be able to organize that in town. It's just this monastery that's been carved out of a cliff face. Hmm. It's pretty incredible. And you walk around through the monastery and go up. You really feel like you're hanging, <laughs> hmm. hanging off the cliff. So I definitely recommend going to there. It's kind of like a side trip. Probably take, I think we did it in a weekend when I was here with my family. There is a section of the Great Wall. You're probably going to have to take a cab out there. I think we paid 200 RMB, $25. It's probably like an hour away from the main city, the place where he took us to, which I'm not sure is really the place that I was looking for. But it was interesting because you think of the Great Wall as this giant wall, but of course it hadn't really been rebuilt since the end of the Ming Dynasty, so the kind of middle of the 16th century or before that, that's the very latest. And it's actually just this long snake of dirt. Every once mm -hmm. in a while, you'll see where the towers used to be. They're just 20, 30-foot-tall towers of dirt, and farmers have taken all the rocks and used them to build their houses. It's a pretty incredible feeling. Interesting. Okay. Any other day trips or side trips that you would recommend when we're in that area of northern China as we go to wrap this up? Probably one more. Chengde. It's less of a day trip. It's more of like a two- or three-day trip. It's an old imperial villa for the Qing you can wander kind of the imperial grounds. They've got a lot of pagodas and things out there. And then on the second day, I would recommend going to some of the temples. Puning Temple is quite pretty. And hang on, this is actually difficult for me to say. Chang Temple, I believe is how it is. It's an exact <laughs> replica of the Putala Palace in Lhasa. Oh, uh, okay. The Qing, they were also Tibetan Buddhists. Okay. Because they were Manchurian, and so... They, I guess, built a replica of it right there. It's a really interesting place. It's not as big as the original Patala Palace down in Lhasa, but it, it's quite big. Hmm. So it's pretty impressive. What's the best day you spent in northern China? Biking through those hutongs, just kind of wandering around, getting lost in some of the hutongs in Beijing. Just kind of seeing that lifestyle that's still going on. It's really interesting. If we're doing the independent travel, we've got street food. Any recommendations for good street food in Beijing? Definitely. You've got Yangro Chuar. It's shish kebab. That's what it is. Okay. That particular kind is lamb shish kebab. You can find it anywhere on the streets in Beijing. 
it's great. If I have a heart attack, it'll be because I've been eating it for too long. But it shouldn't be too dangerous for a tourist just going there for a couple of weeks. So I definitely recommend that. And that's something that really doesn't get into the tour books. You don't hear about that until you get there. But it's just a lot of guys on the side of the street, they'll have a little... Hibachi sort of thing. Yeah. And just be cooking it there. A lot of them are Muslim. Some of them wear the kind of Muslim hat and they're Chinese, but because people expect Muslims to be making that, to be frying those things, so they try and pretend like they're Muslims. Be on the lookout for them. And you can get it anywhere. I say you can get it anywhere. You can get it in a lot of the residential areas of Beijing. Wudalko, which is where I was living, has it everywhere. That's more outside the city center. I doubt you're going to find it in a place like Tiananmen or some kind of a big official area, but on some of the side streets, you might be able to find it. What was your biggest surprise? How modern and how ancient Beijing is Mm -hmm. and kind of how those are sewn together. You've got these giant glass, I feel like faceless or soulless skyscrapers that are kind of in the financial district and the places where I've been to, the places where I lived. They're nicer than most of the places that I've lived in the U.S., but there's a very different lifestyle that you get to and you see kind of in the hutongs and in some of the areas out when you go to the Great Wall or the Ming Tombs, those kind of areas where people are still living in a style that's a lot more like the older ways. Kind of hasn't changed nearly as much. That was definitely the biggest surprise. And when did you feel furthest from home what was definitely not atlanta i guess getting up on top of the wall the first time i climbed up onto the great wall was at mutianyu getting on top of there and seeing the wall and just seeing kind of how long it was how it almost seemed infinite that was definitely the moment i had been in the country for four or five days at that point okay we climbed off the wall and we went to one of the restaurants near mutianyu and they're kind of disturbing, but it's what they do in China. I saw them doing it last time I went. One of your dishes is fish, and so you get to fish it out, actually, and they have a ton of little hatcheries there. And instead of, like, putting bait onto a hook, you throw your line in there, and then you yank the rod up, and the fish are in the little pool. They're so thick that the hook, if after you do it maybe five or ten times, they catch onto them, and they actually, like, hook into their scales, and you pull them out. Oh, uh, you're snare fishing yeah okay that day was kind of like wow i'm not at home anymore i'm not in (laughs) kansas (laughs) and your best money saving tip for china use the subways as your main form of transportation instead of taxis they're so cheap try and stay in more local oriented places don't necessarily go for the hilton or the marriott the great wall right there at tiananmen try and find something that's a little more out of the way if you want to save a little bit more money Okay. And then as we go to wrap this up, last two questions. You really know you're in Beijing when? It's got to be either when you're biking through a hutong and an old lady is hanging out her clothes to dry or when you're eating the kind of shish kebab on the street at night and there are tons of Chinese kids roaming around buying stuff. There are people on the sidewalks. They set out little blankets to sell anything you can think of. Like I bought a copy of Planet Google or the audacity of hope. They're selling just tons of things, and it's got this vibrancy that, on the street at least that you really don't get as much in the U.S. That's when you know you're in Beijing. Okay. And if you had to summarize Beijing in three words, what three words? I'm going to go with ancient, modern, Mm -hmm. hmm, changing. 
Interesting. Mm-hmm. Just the pace of change there. You go and you come back six months later and things are changing. And when you're there, you can feel how much it's changing. Lee, thanks so much for coming on the show and showing us another side of Beijing. Thank you for having me on. It's been great. I'm going to skip internet resources today because I just didn't find anything that really caught my eye. In news from the community, the highlight of the week for me was definitely that while I was in Chicago at the Travel Bloggers Exchange Conference, I did have a chance to have the first ever amateur traveler meetup. Got six of the listeners who drove as long as three hours into Chicago, which still just amazes me, to come meet with my wife Joan and I, and we just had a ball. We just had a grand time. There's a picture of the meetup both in the enhanced version of the show as well as on the blog at blog.amateurtraveler.com. I'm still hoping to do other meetups. And then also one of the topics that came up while we talked was the possibility again of an amateur traveler trip. That idea has not quite died. It's just lingering on the vine a little until I get some time to look at it. And so I'm hoping to put out a survey here in the next week or so for those who might be interested, what exactly you would be interested in. And then the other highlight from the trip was the Travel Bloggers Exchange meetup itself, which was a great time to get together with a 100 different travel bloggers as well as sponsors and PR representatives to talk about travel blogging, which was just really, truly wonderful. And my thanks go out especially to Debbie Dubrow and Kim Mance, who organized that event. Certainly hope that's something we do again. And then in comments that I received recently, P. Silvo wrote in and said, It's always interesting to hear foreign perspectives on Finland. This, of course, was on the Travel to Finland episode. This was a very interesting episode and also served the purpose of introducing me to the Amateur Traveler podcast in general. Thanks. One small correction to what Melissa said. She seemed to pronounce the Finnish word for the Midsummer Festival as Johannes, where it should be Johannus. So I'm assuming now we've just butchered that twice. And then in the final comment, Becky, who I had a chance to meet in Chicago last week, wrote about the cruise to Falklands, South Georgia, and the Antarctic, or episode 180. I had mentioned that she should look at the photos of Chris from Atlanta, who was the guest on that show, and she wrote and said, wow, getting caught up in old shows, and I'm so glad you mentioned to make sure to look at the photos. His photos are amazing of the birds, penguins, animals, and glaciers. Did I say wow yet? I keep saying it while looking at these photos. And for those of you who don't know, who are new subscribers, what Becky is discovering is that there is a version of the Amateur Traveler that comes out for iTunes, which is available for free for both Windows and Mac, that includes pictures for everything that we're talking about. And when we have somebody on like Chris, who Chris and his wife are wonderful photographers, that's a real treat. With that, we're going to bring this episode of The Amateur Traveler to a close. If you have any comments, feel free to leave them at AmateurTraveler.com, as Becky did just now, or send me an email at host at AmateurTraveler.com. Follow me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash X. And as always, thanks so much for listening. I got to see one more cathedral. I got to sit in one more cafe. I know that I should.